This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books and Economics, a podcast channel from the New Books Network. I'm Peter Lawrenson, an associate professor of economics at the University of San Francisco. My guest today is Professor Alvin Roth, the Craig and Susan McCaw Professor of Economics at Stanford University and the 2012 co-recipient of the Nobel Memorial Prize in Economics. He's known for his theoretical and practical work on the design of markets and matching algorithms. And we're going to talk about his book, Who Gets What and Why? The New Economics of Matchmaking and Market Design. And this book came out in 2015, so we're also going to jump off from there and uh, talk about some uh, recent developments in, in market design and uh, what he's been working on since then. So, Professor Roth, welcome. Thank you for coming on the show. Oh, thank you. Um, so, to start off, why don't you just tell us what is market design? You know, don't don't markets just work? What about the invisible hand that we all learned about uh, in you know, grade school? Well, you know, when when you think of a a wheel that rotates freely, you don't think of it just in space. You think of it as having an axle and and bearings and are, that are well oiled. And I think I think markets are like that too. They need they need rules to to allow them to work well and and efficiently. Uh, you know, Hayek in A Road to Serfdom starts off very clearly about that. He says, uh, you know, it, it doesn't help to cry laissez-faire. Uh, markets need to be understood the way a, a gardener understands what, what plants need in order to grow well. So market design is an ancient human activity. People have been doing it since before history. Um, but as, as economists understand better how markets work and as technology changes and, and more markets move online, say, where, where their rules have to be explicit enough to be written in code, um, understanding the design of markets and, and, and how we can design them to work better uh, is becoming a more important part of economics. Okay, so, so um, what are some of the things that you need to do to, to make a market work? <clears throat> or what's an example of something where it could go wrong and then fail? Well, um, you know, think about the taxi market before Uber, right? It was a very, it wasn't a thick market. I, I live in uh, Palo Alto. If I wanted to get a ride up to San Francisco, it, you know, before Uber, I had to call a, uh, a taxi company that was licensed in Palo Alto. And when I wanted to go home from San Francisco, I had to call a taxi company that was licensed in uh, San Francisco to take me home to Palo Alto. And neither of those taxis could pick up someone on the way back. They had to come back empty because that was the way taxi laws were written. Um, so that was a market that, that was substantially disrupted by, by Uber. And, and for various reasons, among them that, that uh, much bigger universe of drivers can drive, but also, and, and quite importantly, is after I get out of my Uber in San Francisco, the driver can pick someone up right there and, and keep driving. So, so that was a market that wasn't thick. It was congested, uh, and and it depended in part on new technology to take off. You know, the internet wasn't enough for Uber. You, you, with the internet, you could start eBay, but you couldn't start Uber. You needed 
uh, smartphones and, and GPS because Uber needs to know where you are and where the drivers are. Um, so markets evolve and, and strategy spaces are large. And sometimes we can look at long-standing markets like taxis and, and find ways to, to make them work better. Okay, so yeah, so you're saying there there um, that there's there's an inefficiency. I think you're kind of implying. Uh, you mentioned um, that it's not a thick market. So so for people who don't know that a, a thick market uh, is just there's lots of buyers and sellers. So when you when you want to buy something, it's there for you. As opposed to like maybe you know Palo Alto taxi twenty years ago, you call them and you got to make sure you call a couple hours ahead of time to make sure someone's available. Or if you call on short notice, you might have to wait five minutes or twenty minutes or thirty minutes until they could someone is free to get there for you. Um, but you also mentioned, uh, you know, th- so you're saying thick is good, but then you're saying congested markets is bad. So could you explain more? What, what's a congested market? Well, it can, so, so a thick market is, as you say, it's a market with lots of potential transactions available uh, when, when you want them. But, but when lots of people are coming to the marketplace, it might, uh, they might, it might take time to, to evaluate and sort through the transactions and to complete them. And of course, you can have imbalances between supply and demand. One reason it used to take a long time to get a taxi was uh, there weren't many taxis because cities limited the number of taxis that that uh, they would license and you had to be licensed. And another sense in which the market wasn't as thick as it might be was um, when there was demand for taxis in Palo Alto, new taxis couldn't come in from Menlo Park and, and neighboring cities because taxis were licensed, uh, at least for street pickup to to just work in their municipalities. So, um, but congestion is, is an important thing that, that markets have to overcome. You know, a, a market that I like to talk about in that respect is Airbnb, uh, which, which now competes with hotels. It's, it's quite a thick market. There are lots of travelers and lots of hosts, but many of the properties that you can reserve on Airbnb are run by a single proprietor. And think how difficult it would be to get a hotel room in San Francisco, if when I called up the San Francisco Hilton and said, I'd like to come on Friday, do you have a room for me? If the, the telephone operator said to me, well, which room do you want? And I, I had to pick a number, you know, how about room 572? And she'd say, oh, I'm so sorry, uh, room 572 is booked. And then she'd hang up and I'd have to call and say, how about room 574? And she'd say, oh yeah, yeah, we, we've got room 574. But that's a little bit the problem that faced Airbnb. Uh, in its early days, especially when it was mostly on internet and not on apps, um, is that if I were trying to rent my guest room to, to people, um, they would apply. And when I came home at the end of the day, I would see that six people had asked to, to rent my guest room on, on Friday, and I could only give it to one of them. And then I would write emails to the other saying, I'm so sorry, uh, I couldn't give it to you. And 12 hours would have passed since they had tried to reserve it, and now they would have to try to reserve another room. Uh, so, so it's even Airbnb. worse than your receptionist story because not the receptionist would would take your order and say, "Oh, room four fifty five. Okay, well, I'll tell you it. You know, I'll tell you at five p.m. <laughs> whether that's going to be available, and then then you can go ahead and try for room four fifty seven if uh, if yes. this one's not available. Yeah, that's exactly right. So that was early. E- that was early Airbnb, and they they've made a couple of market design improvements. One, of course, is going to apps so that hosts can check quickly. Another is that as soon as I try to reserve your room, they take it off everyone else's app. So no one else can try to reserve your room while while you're thinking about me, while there's an application in that you haven't changed. And they've also uh, moved to a much more buy it now kind of thing. They, they encourage hosts to automatically accept 
uh, uh, visitors, uh, travelers who, who have ratings above a certain threshold. So, so it starts to be possible for me to just go on Airbnb and, and reserve a room the way I would in a hotel. And that's a way of dealing with the congestion. And so it's something they have to do if they're going to compete with hotels, which, which is who they're now competing with. And I guess that also kind of helps with the uh, problem that they're experiencing at some point that people might have had, you know, conscious or unconscious biases about what kind of person they would trust in their house and that that could, you know, negatively impact like black people who are looking for a room if just someone even just a little bit, you know, on average thinks like I'm, I'm less certain that this person is going to be okay in my house if we have it, if they have a rep, an established reputation and an automatic setting, then that can improve. In a sense, that's I guess right. that's a, the opposite of, you know, Uber, Uber sort of improved that problem because, you know, if you're a black person in America, you could then just type in on the Uber and like the Uber would come and you wouldn't have to worry about the taxi driver kind of vetting you on the street and driving past you, which uh, used to happen. Um, but I guess Airbnb kind of went the opposite. <laughs> Probably before you could call a hotel and get the, get the thing, but now um, uh, the Airbnb had to, had to fix that problem. So, yeah, interesting to see how the, the technology can kind of work in, in both, both directions. Absolutely. So, um, so yeah, these are, these are great examples. Um, uh, so you, uh, your own background, you know, we're coming from, you know, uh, operations research and, and math and, you know, very, uh, abstract areas. How did you, how did, how did you in your career evolve from, uh, working on, you know, pure theory problems with pencil and paper to actually getting into, um, you know, fixing stuff in the real world? Well, it, it took a long time, but, but I studied game theory. It's the kind of math I was interested in. And game theory is about rules and how people interact with rules and with each other through rules. And that lends itself naturally to market design because a big part of the design of market is the, the marketplace rules. That's not the only part of the design of market. As we've been talking about the, the technology matters, the, uh, the environment matters, all sorts of things matter. But but when you're talking about rules, you start to be positioned to think about how all those things interact. And that was a big change in economics. There was a time where economists thought of markets as supply and demand, and they just interacted automatically through some kind of Valrhesian auctioneer. But of course, even in the most standard kind of markets, like the New York Stock Exchange, there are all sorts of rules and procedures and, and you know, the details of who can actually trade, trade shares on the exchange and how, how customers of the exchange can get shares traded on the exchange for them. Uh, these, are, these are part of the design of the market. It's not the, the abstract Valrhesian auctioneer setting the price. So, um, so what was your first sort of project that got you out of, uh, you know, the, the pure theory work and into actually trying to, trying to diagnose and, and repair or create a market? Well, so one of the markets I started studying quite early was the, the market for new doctors in the United States. And, you know, when you talk about market design, you have to remember that design is a noun as well as a verb, right? Markets have designs. And I started by studying the design of, of the labor market for doctors, which used a centralized clearinghouse that had many interesting properties. Um, and in the course of studying it, I also encountered some of the difficulties they were having. Uh, but I never really thought it was my job to solve those difficulties. So, um, so I have a paper in the 1980s, early 1980s in the JPE about the market for doctors. 
And one of the problems they were facing is there were a growing number of, of married couples, doctors married to each other, who were looking for two jobs. And that um, vastly increases the mathematical difficulty of understanding and, and resolving, clearing the market. But as a theorist, I, I proved that and stopped. You know, I said, this is a hard problem, full stop. It was a great paper, uh, but it wasn't my problem. Uh, and then I kept studying it and, and things kept happening. And around 1995, I was uh, sitting in my office at the University of Pittsburgh when the phone rang and the director of the of, of that clearinghouse, the National Resident Matching Program was on the line. And he asked whether I would direct a redesign of, of that market um, to fix some of the problems, to address some of the problems. And I, I still have a vivid memory of that phone call because I had this visceral reaction was, oh, I'm so sorry I picked up the phone uh, because I don't know anything about this. Um, but of course, I, I did know things about it. I knew that they were hard problems. And when I decided to accept his invitation, they became my hard problems. And that really changed my attitude toward the kind of work I was doing. Instead of, it was no longer enough to end a paper by saying, this is a hard problem. Now you had to think, how hard is it? How do you solve it? If you can't solve it perfectly, will the imperfections come up often so that you have to deal with them or only very rarely so that, that maybe you can ignore them? And so instead of knowing just which things always happened and which things could never happen, I also had to start to understand which things frequently happened, which was led me to different kinds of theory. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so how did, so when you, when you proceeded with, with that or with others, uh, other projects, so it's, it's not just a theory thing, right? So you can, like you said, with theory, we can prove certain things never happen or certain things always happen, assuming the rules, but then how do you go and about actually like figure out whether your theory, you know, matches with the, you know, with the, the observations of the design that you've already made and then, and then figuring out how to change, uh, change it to make it better. Well, so, so you need to do some empirical work. And the empirical work can be about the rules themselves, but it can also be about the data. You know, the thing about the, the National Resident Matching Program is it was a computerized clearinghouse. So they had years of data in which people had submitted preferences and they had worked on those preferences to try to get good matchings. And so, um, so we had those data available to us uh, and we could study what, what was happening in that market. And, and uh, one of the things we discovered is that the set of stable matchings was very small. That was something that since, you know, in the, in the 15 years since that discovery, the theory has caught up with it. We now start to understand why the set of staple matchings in that market is very small. Maybe we, we should do a that. sidebar here and explain uh, for people who don't know, what, what's a stable matching? Why is that important? Ah, so, so the National Resident Matching Program is the clearinghouse through which your doctor got his first job, if you, if you have an American doctor. And... Uh, that first job is a job called a residency. And uh, the way medical students apply for residency is they, they go on interviews, they make applications, they go on interviews, but eventually they submit a rank order list of the places I interviewed, this is my first choice, my second choice, my third choice. And the residency programs do the same thing. And the National Resident Matching Program tries to put them together in a matching. It suggests who should work where. And a good property for a matching to have if you want people to, to take the advice of the clearinghouse is that there shouldn't be a, a doctor-employer pair, a doctor and a residency program, who are not matched to each other, who both would have been, who both prefer to have been matched to each other than than who you suggested. So if you want if you want to 
be suggesting good good outcomes that that people will abide by and and the market will work smoothly it's important to find stable matchings matchings that don't have blocking pairs and a blocking pair is is a pair of people who would like to be matched to each other and could match to each other but but you haven't matched them to each other so um so in the medical market like in any market if I'm a graduating doctor, I might not get my first choice. I might prefer to work at a different place than I'm, than I'm going to end up working. But supposing I'm working at my third choice hospital, I'm only part of a blocking pair if one of the hospitals I prefer, my first choice or my second choice, also prefers me. And the nice thing about the resident match is when you don't have couples, you can show that you can always find a, a stable match. And the early theory of that was done um, without knowing that doctors had already explored this in, in a practical way, by uh, in, a, in a wonderful, wonderful paper by uh, David Gale and Lloyd Shapley, published in 1962, for which Shapley uh, shared the Nobel Prize. Um, and they showed that, that in a simple way, you could find stable matchings no matter what the preferences were. But when you have couples, couples need two jobs, not one, and, and you can no longer show that a stable matching always exists. But it turns out it almost always exists in markets of the size of the medical market. So, so it's a problem, but it's a soluble problem. Right. And I guess actually this, this uh, just to, to back up even further for, for people who, who aren't familiar with matching. So this, this illustrates the point of why a matching market is very different from kind of a, an econ one market, right? So in a, in a matching market, you as the doctor uh, don't just want to get paid the most. You and, and you want to go to the hospital that is in the location you prefer or in the specialty you prefer. And then also the hospital doesn't just want to, you know, pay a market clearing price and get whatever doctor will show up for that, but is actually interested in someone who, for whatever reason, you know, does what they want or is, you know, uh, as talented as they can get um, and, and whatever their criteria are for, for doing that. And so the, the, the salary presumably plays an element in there, but the matching element of like, you, you want to find the right job and the job wants to find the right person is, is um, almost uh, more important than that. Well, that's right. So matching markets, markets in which people have relationships along with their transactions uh, are matching markets and they're not commodity markets, right? So, so I mentioned the New York Stock Exchange. In the New York Stock Exchange, if you want to buy shares in Microsoft, you don't care who you buy them from. You don't worry whether they've taken good care of those shares when they had them. Uh, they don't worry who they're selling to. Uh, you just care about finding finding the price. Uh, but when but in a labor market, an employment market, um, you know Stanford doesn't hire assistant professors by lowering the salary until just enough people want to come to fill the classrooms. And we don't um, we don't fill our classrooms with students by by uh, raising the tuition until no more of the students than we can accommodate can come. Uh, in both cases, you know, Stanford has, um, you know, un unlike buying shares on the New York Stock Exchange, where you offer to everyone, I'm willing to buy 100 shares at this price. That's not the way we make job offers. We make job offers to specific individuals. Uh, and so matching markets are markets where you can't just uh, choose what you want. You also have to be chosen. You can't just work at Stanford. You also have to be hired. Google can't just decide you're going to come work for them. They have to compete with Amazon. Um, those are matching markets. And so matching markets have to do more than just price discovery. Right, right. So, um, okay, so you mentioned the, the, the um, doctor's market. How, what kinds of things did you do to, to fix that medical matching process and make it work more smoothly? 
Well, we, we uh, helped do a better job with couples than we've been doing. That was one of the big things. They had some other things going on too. Some doctor, so a couple is a household that, that needs two jobs. It turns out in medicine, there are some individuals who need two jobs. There are some specialties with, that if you want to train in, you have to first get some training in medicine or in surgery. Uh, so, so some individuals going through the market need two jobs. Those are, are, are complicated things for the mathematics and therefore for the clearinghouse. Uh, there were some smaller things as well. There hospitals, um, in these same specialties where some people need two jobs, you might be the director of a residency program at our hospital, and you need to, to fill your slots with people who've already had some training in my residency program. So you say to me, Al, instead of trying to hire 10 people, why don't you try to hire just six people, and, four, and I'll try to hire four people and put them in your program for a year before they come to my program. And I say to you, that's great, Peter, but, but supposing you fail to hire four, I still need all 10 of mine. So the algorithm has to have a way of saying, you know, my program will fill with six of mine and four of yours, unless you don't get four, in which case I'll get more. So I get my, my full complement. So we had complications like that that had to be fixed. Okay. Um, so, so you mentioned actually like, uh, you know, getting, getting jobs for faculty at Stanford. Um, so, uh, I know you've been you've been involved also with uh, the um, you know economics. I think has the most of, of all the academic disciplines the most uh, sort of centralized and or an organized um, job market. But also you know it it has not resolved all the challenges. But what are some of the things that um, issues that came up there that um, you've uh, you've noticed and that people have fixed and that still remain as problems? Well, so the the economics job market can be congested. And one reason it could be congested is a lot of information has to be shared before a university knows whether it wants to hire a particular new PhD, for example, and vice versa. Um, so, so the steps that we normally go through are um, students finish their PhDs and they get recommended or, or apply for jobs. And, um, and then we have to interview them. And the, uh, Pre-COVID, the way we interviewed them is we have this big national meeting uh, the first weekend in January, um, and people would come to some, you know, some lovely winter city like Chicago, and uh, and and do a lot of interviews during the meetings, and then after the interviews, I, but there's a limit to how many interviews you can do. An interview takes something like 45 minutes and there's only two and a half days of meetings. So, so departments had to look at lots of applications and decide on a, a relatively small number of interviews, you know, 20 or 30 interviews. And then um, people would go back to their departments and they would explain to their colleagues who they'd interviewed and who they were excited about. And some smaller number of those people who'd been interviewed would be invited out for full day visits, flyouts on the campus. Uh, and the whole faculty would meet them. They would give a seminar to the whole faculty to explain what kind of work they did. And then eventually job offers would be made and, and accepted and rejected. Uh, and maybe, maybe there would be a second round of, of job offers. But, but since everything took time and since everything took a lot of effort, interviews are hard and flyouts are hard and time consuming, um, a lot of choices had to be made in advance, who to interview, who to fly out, who to make offers to. Um, now, some markets have failed to, to organize those things and instead have, have 
interviews and offers over a very diffuse period, which means that the offer that comes to you, you have to answer it before you know what other jobs you might be eligible for, things like that. But because of these national meetings, we economists, uh, we're really able to, to provide services at the meeting that help people coordinate on time. Now, last year and this year, the meetings will not be in person because of COVID. And so last year, the interviews were conducted by Zoom or other remote conferencing tools. Um, and that's going to again happen this year. And the American Economic Association has just issued some guidelines basically saying, you know, we, we really hope that the market won't, won't become thin and diffuse. We would like to keep it thick. So we think everyone should do the interviews around the time of the meetings, even though we're no longer going to do them at the meetings where, where it'll be convenient. So we'll see how that happens. You know, it's possible that the technology of interviewing will change and it may have wider repercussions for, for the economics job market. But I'm hopeful that this year people will mostly do their interviews around the same time, which will help coordinate the timing of offers, which will allow candidates to, to sometimes compare offers and decide which ones they want instead of having to say yes or no without knowing what offers might be coming. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Although that still, it seems like it might make even, well, especially that because there's, I think, a, a market overhang, like it's maybe more candidates out this year, like people who graduated last year or could have, but maybe are hanging on one more year in, in hopes that, you know, as the economy and everything stabilized, they might uh, get a job offer. They couldn't. There, there's potentially this greater supply, which I think raises another issue that's come up in a lot of your work of, of people wanting to game the system or, or trying to figure out, like, like if I'm, you know, so for instance, I'm hoping that we'll be allowed to hire University of San Francisco. And, you know, San Francisco is an amazing world famous city. Our university is a good university, but a little bit less famous than, you know, our neighbors at Berkeley at Stanford. So we, you know, we can't just start with like, we don't, we don't get to, unlike your, you know, medical matching, I can't just start with a list of like all the candidates and say, well, here's the top 20, you know, here's the superstar from Harvard and we'll make her an offer and, uh, you know, see if that works out and go down the list, you know, because I don't even, you know, want to spend my time necessarily even interviewing her. I mean, and then as we get on the list and, and she also has a limited amount of time, even if it's all on Zoom, you know, we all get tired of Zoom, so can't do that many meetings. Um, so, so how do we, uh, how have you tried to fix that in the, the market, and especially when the market's fluctuating, right? So if I knew like, you know, where my place was and roughly who I could target normally, it'd be fine. Um, but, but how do we, what have you done to fix that? And is there any, are there any further steps that could be taken? Absolutely. Good, good leading question. Um, let me just mention that before I taught it, Stanford, immediately before I taught at Harvard. But before that, I spent half my career first at the University of Illinois and then at the University of Pittsburgh. And the uh, University of Pittsburgh say, you know, as, as you describe, uh, an excellent American university, a, a wonderful place to work, but not an elite uh, eye-catching place like, like Harvard and Stanford. And so we had the same problem you have. We, we liked um, some of the same PhD candidates that Harvard and Stanford liked when I was at Pitt. But if we simply interviewed the same people Harvard and Stanford interviewed, then we wouldn't do as much hiring as, as we wanted to do in return for all that work. So we had to 
select uh, candidates who we thought might be interested in us as well as us being interested in them. And there weren't good tools for people to indicate that. And one of the things I helped the American Economic Association organize as, as a tweak to our market design was a signaling mechanism. So uh, in early December, uh, the AEA opens up a, 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 a web page that allows people to, allows candidates to send signals to two of the jobs they've applied to that are to be interpreted as, you know, I'm, I'd particularly like to get an interview with you and, and pursue discussions. And um, everyone who advertises a job in the job openings for economists, the, the job fair that the AEA organizes, has to have, has to submit an email address at which these signals will be received. And then the American Economic Association sends one email to each job that was advertised and it says, these are the people who signaled particular interest in your job. So, you, so it's just one email to the department and the signals are valuable because candidates are only allowed to send two. And our advice to candidates is not to signal Harvard and Stanford. We, if we're interested in you, we assume that you might be interested in us. But when I was at Pittsburgh, we were, you know, we understood that candidates who, who might be of interest to Harvard and Stanford might very likely knew that, that it's hard to get jobs at Harvard and Stanford, and they would be glad to have some interviews at other places they were interested in. And so we'd be glad to know which ones, for instance, might know about what we did at Pitt and, and want to work with us, as compared to otherwise very similar people who, who if they didn't get a job at Harvard or Stanford, might have preferred Ohio State. Um, and, and so the signals became helpful for places like Pittsburgh to to sort who to interview, at least on the margin, you know, the last interviews you're going to do. And another place where I've seen that having evidence is, well, two other places. One is liberal arts colleges, uh, because they worry that, that new PhDs, now that it's easy to, to submit lots of applications, they might be submitting applications to liberal arts colleges without a, a, a particular interest in the special kind of education that liberal arts colleges do. But if you get a signal from from someone, that's a sign, since they only had two signals, that they really are interested. And another group of people who seem interested in signals is uh, colleges in Britain, universities in Britain, because um, everyone who graduates with a PhD from a North American university can speak and teach in English. And the British universities have to figure out whether you know, for instance, that University College London is a, you know, a world-class university and you would like to go there, or if you're an American who would rather stay in the continental United States, but if you can't get any job in North America, you'd be willing to go to England. Those are differently rewarding to interview if, if you're a, a university in London. Um, and, and so they appreciate signals so that they know who understands that, that they're really nice places to work as opposed to who's applying to them, along with liberal arts colleges, just in case they don't get the kind of job they want. So signaling, we think, has eased a little bit of the burden of figuring out who to interview when you have hundreds of applications, as we tend to have each year in a Department of Economics, uh, but you can only do 25 interviews. That's great. And so you have found evidence that, that it's been uh, effective, for, um, or at least at least We found some evidence. It's, it's hard to gather evidence. We're, we're actually trying to gather some longer term evidence because it's been more than 10 years now that we've had the signaling system. So we're hoping to see some evidence in employment, not just in interviews. Uh, but, but that's a very noisy signal because, of course, the chance that a signal turns into an interview is not so great. 
and the chance that an interview turns into a job is not so great, and the chance that the that the job offer turns into an accepted job that we can see in an employment history is not so great. So there, there's a lot of noise uh, together with the signals. Right. Yeah. I guess you. But I don't know if there's if the discipline will let you do that, but I guess you'd want to maybe add a third add a third signal to a randomly selected half of the half of the candidates, and then uh, and then have everyone put down three signals, but one third one of the third signals won't get sent out or something yeah. like that. Well, we thought of that. I mean, we're we're you know experimental economists as well as market designers, but because it's an actual job market, think how you would feel if in the year you were on the job market, we said, send us the three the names of the three places you would like us to signal and we'll randomly signal to one, two or three of those places. And, and, you know, maybe we'll only send out one of your signals, but, but some of the people you're competing with will, will send out three of their signals. Uh, that might seem like a, a, a hostile intervention in the job market. So we didn't get to do that. That would be a, a great source of evidence though. Yeah, no, that's true. Sometimes the, the conflict between like doing good research and, and doing something that, that people are, are, I mean, I guess if you're an economist on the job market, it's pretty much just only one location to do it in the U.S. So, so there's no no option to opt out, but uh, but certainly that would that would create a lot of uh, a lot of resentments. Um, so uh, so another another area you've done work in, and and I'll admit that I'm interested party here. So I'm a parent in the San Francisco Unified School District. Now you know you've uh, you did a lot of work with uh, Boston and New York, which uh, are, are featured in your. Uh, in your book, but you did also help out with the, the San Francisco uh, district, you and a team of, of colleagues. So um, what were, uh, so maybe you could illustrate, you know, what, what are the, uh, how, how does, how does that work? Why is there even an issue? I think people in a lot of America, uh, they just, you know, whatever, wherever your kid lives, that determines what your schools you are. So maybe you should explain like, how do these big city school districts work and, and what are the issues? And then um, how did that, how does that work out in practice and how do you right. try to fix it? Well, okay, I'll, let me tell you about that in general, but, but let, me, let me start with a caveat about San Francisco Unified School District, which is we tried to help them, but they were hard to help and we didn't succeed. Um, and that has to do partly, I think, with the way San Francisco Unified School District was and is organized. Uh, we can talk about that if you want. But, but the general problem is if you just, um, if you just assign children, particularly small children, say going to kindergarten, if you just assign them to the school nearest where they live, then you reproduce residential segregation and you, you sometimes uh, condemn children who grow up in poor neighborhoods to go to poor schools. And so there's this feeling that, that, uh, that that's somewhat wasteful, especially uh, when, when schools have uh, different capabilities, you know, magnet schools that might teach different languages, things like that, or, and as the children get older uh, and have, have more diverse interests. Uh, and what, what's wasteful is, is sort of if, if my child goes to a school that would have been great for your child, while your child goes to a school that would have been great for my child. So even when we don't have enough great schools, we could waste the ones we have because they might be great for different people. So, um, so a lot of American school districts now have systems where parents can indicate preferences for schools because we have the idea that um, parents have some information about which schools would be good for their children. And partly that has to do with where they live. Uh, you know, not, not having your child have a long commute is, is always a good thing. But partly it has to do with, you know, which, uh, 
Kindergarten teachers are good with shy boys, if you've got a shy boy. And what we'd like to do when we help design these systems is to allow you to concentrate on the important thing, like visiting kindergartens and, and seeing which teachers seem to, to be good with, with shy boys, um, as opposed to having to game the system and think which school, you know, we, we want you to think which school would I like my kid to go to, as opposed to which school, if I say that's my first choice, will will get me the best school for my child, right? It, it's easier to just decide which is my first choice, which is my second choice, which is my third, without having to game the whole system. And many uh, school districts, including San Francisco, had gameable systems where in order to, to protect your child properly, you had to, to investigate a little bit how the school choice mechanism worked. Um, but but in New York and in Boston and in Denver and in New Orleans and in a bunch of American cities, we've now been able to help school districts fix that problem and make it safe for parents to provide reliably and, and straightforwardly the information about which schools they would like. That doesn't create more top schools, so, um, so, so not everyone gets their first choice, but knowing what everyone's choices are helps you get a better match. Now, in San Francisco, we weren't able to do that. This was some years ago. Um, the San Francisco School Board was a very unusual organization. As I understand it, it was an unpaid set of positions. And so the school board basically worked only when they met. Um, you know, there, there was a, they weren't in position, they didn't have staff, they weren't able to do a lot of follow-up. And so the San Francisco Unified School District, the, the professional technocrats who, who ran it, were pretty much unsupervised. And they also, in our experience, didn't feel obliged to respond a lot to parent concerns. They were, they were unsupervised at top and bottom. And so after the school board accepted the design we had proposed and, and instructed them to implement it, they broke off contact with us and didn't implement it, but said they had. And that persisted for many years. My understanding is they're now trying again. And some of my colleagues here at Stanford, uh, Itaya Schlage and, and uh, uh, Irene Lowe are among them, uh, are trying again to help them, and maybe they'll be able to, uh, because we've learned a lot about about school choice. Um, one of my students at Harvard, who took a leading role in in the redesign of the New York and Boston uh, school choice systems, is Parag Patak, who's a, a professor at MIT and has done a lot of work on schools, including empirical work on follow-up, what's the effect of good school choice systems, things like that. So, so there's a good deal that's that's known now. Not everything is known, and each city can be different. But um, but certainly help is available for for school districts that that um, want to do a better job and are in a position to do so. Do you have a sense of? It sounds like this may have been a little bit behind closed doors, but do you have a sense of why the San Francisco uh, district? So you said actually you had the buy-in from the school board, and they they said they wanted to do the system, but then uh, then the people who actually had to implement it sort of didn't bother. Um, yeah. So what, uh, yeah, what, do you have any idea what constraints they faced or what kind of political incentives I they don't. I, I, I'm, um, I think they just didn't feel that they were very answerable to anyone and that, uh, and that they didn't understand why it mattered to, to have a good school choice system. And they thought that, that anyone could program, you know, that, that it was a question of computer programming rather than design and that they would just program it on their own, you know, have a, have a high school teacher who could code do it, I think is what they did. Oh, wow. 
<laughs> okay. Well, yeah. Um, that's interesting that it was, uh, yeah, I didn't realize that the issue was with the district. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't know if you followed local news, but currently there's a campaign to recall the members of the school board because people, uh, parents in San Francisco felt like they were particularly had misplaced priorities during the pandemic and, and were not really focused on, they were one of the, been one of the last districts to get kids back in schools in person. And, um, you know, there's definitely a lot of that is it's a, a under-resourced school district. And so uh, in a big city and that's challenging, but even compared to other big cities, um, no. people are not, not happy, but that was about the school board. Uh, well, the school board and the district together, I think both no. school districts are perennially under-resourced. Yeah. Yeah. I know that's, <laughs> I know in a sense, in a sense, it's, uh, yeah, it's good that you can work on the margin to make their, the assignment systems better. But then of course, if, if no one has, you know, just the basic funds to keep their buildings, you know, no, no. ventilated and heated and <laughs> all that kind of stuff, it's tough. And another controversy just from looking at the headlines that, that I'm aware of that's now in San Francisco has to do with the exam school, right? There, there's a high school. Yes. Uh, and that's something that's around the country, right? So, so a lot of exams were canceled for health reasons during COVID. And that's brought to the surface this whole question of, do we want to admit students to some schools uh, based on their scores and exams or, or based on broader demographic principles? Right, yeah. And so now, yeah, that's true. Actually, the, the Lowell High School, the, the sort of previous prestige high school, uh, I mean, still is in San Francisco. Uh, yeah, their um, applications, it'll just be through, through a lottery, um, just like anywhere else. So. Uh, I think the the promise is that if you go there, you'll still have access to you know five times as many AP courses as you would at any other high school, and you'll have the most um, you know uh, demanding um, instructors or teachers. But um, but whether you get in will depend entirely on whether you feel like you're up to it, as opposed to you know their test based assessment of, right. of whether you're you're ready. And as a as a teacher, you know how much material you can cover, how demanding you can be, depends on your classes. It's not just the choice of the teacher; it's an interaction between the teacher and the students. Right, right, exactly. So yeah, that's that's definitely a uh, concern. Um, okay, well, um, so uh, we just have a few minutes left, but I wanted to um, ask you uh, two more things. So I guess first, I'm I'm curious. You know. Uh, we've kind of alluded to this, you know, in Econ 101, we usually start with like supply and demand and, you know, commodity markets. And we show that like, if we let the prices do their own thing, invisible hand, we'll maximize consumer and producer surplus. It's all wonderful. And, you know, if you have, uh, 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 you know, price floors or minimum wages or, you know, ceilings on anything, you know, that, that keeps people from, from making, you know, their own, uh, own optimal decisions, you're just going to kind of mess it up. Um, and, uh, and at least reduce surplus as we measure it. Um, so how would you, and that doesn't touch on any of, you know, the issues that you've raised. So how would you re, uh, if you're starting from scratch, um, how, what would you do? And I don't know if you're involved in this at all, but you know, I'm not involved in it at all. And I wasn't educated as an economist, as you noted at the beginning. So I, I speak with some trepidation about economics, education of undergraduates, but, um, but you know, you, you sort of. You had a phrase in there just now where you said, you know, if the prices can do what they want or something like that. Uh, and prices don't want to do anything. People want things. And price formation is something that we can study, for example, in, in how people behave and interact with each other. So the most recent Nobel Prize in economics was to my colleagues, Paul Milgram and Bob Wilson, for auction design. Auctions are, are one kind of marketplace that determines prices. 
and different auction rules determine prices differently and determine and, and you know they study complicated spectrum auctions. So there's a matching process, you know, who gets which bundle of licenses is as important as, as what the prices uh, spent for Spectrum are. So, um, so auction design just won a Nobel Prize. Uh, the prices don't just do it. Someone has to design the marketplace in which price discovery can happen. And I, I would uh, place more emphasis on that when, when talking to, to new economic students because economics is a social science. We study how human beings uh, coordinate and cooperate and compete with each other. And markets are, and marketplaces are ancient human artifacts. They're tools that we build to, to help us do all these things we want to do. So, so I would put some more emphasis in that uh, to let people know that as they learn more and more economics, they're not just going to be learning more mathematics and more fixed point theorems. They're going to be learning more how people behave and how over the course of time, uh, the institutions that we build to help us coordinate with each other have evolved. So think about, you know, digital marketplaces now and, and you know, certainly with COVID and remote work, they've, they've blossomed and all of a sudden Amazon is, is uh, a place where you can buy, you know, all sorts of things. Uh, you know, that, that's, this isn't the first time that's happened, right? In, in the 1800s, when Sears Roebuck and Montgomery Ward uh, invented mail order catalogs, they became the Amazon of rural America. Uh, people could buy clothes through the mail instead of home production of clothes being a big part of women's work, as it was in the 1800s. So, so just as we're having a revolution now in, in retail and logistics delivery, uh, you know, they had a, a revolution then. Um, and, and these are because people do things, because market designs change as technology changes and as people discover uh, new strategies. So, so I think of economics as, as uh, on the one hand, a very human story, and on the other hand, as an integral part of what it means to be human and how we make uh, human societies. And, and I'd be uh, you know, glad to see that conveyed earlier in people's economics education so that they understand uh, why it's attractive to be an economist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I guess also that uh, we don't have time to get into it. But you've mentioned you know, this idea of the economist as engineer. Um, you know, so I think that that econ one class tends to sort of say, "Don't intervene and just look how perfect it is," and uh, is kind of the message sometimes yeah. people take away from that. Um, or certainly, if you hear them you know, talk, as talking heads on TV twenty years later and they say, "I learned in econ one hundred one," and blah blah blah, it's usually just don't touch anything because uh, right. it's perfect. Right. Um, right. And, so that's uh, yeah. clearly not true anymore, even on the job market. You know, when, when yeah. I was a young man, if you met someone who said his, he was the chief economist of some company, then very likely that company was a bank and very likely he was a macroeconomist who helped them forecast interest rates and, and things like that. But now, you know, the chief economist of Microsoft is Michael Schwartz, who's a market designer. The chief economist of Google is Hal Varian, who's a market designer, uh, you know, Uber and Airbnb and eBay and, and, you know, all these new Amazon are marketplaces. They, they, you know, they, they don't necessarily rely only on economists. They rely a lot on computer scientists to, to make digital marketplaces. But, but it's clearer than ever that, that marketplaces are things that people make. And often they, 
often now it's so clear because they make them on the web where, where they have to be encoded in software. So they can't have fuzzy rules that say, you know, you should be polite to each other on the trading floor. They have very precise rules that say when, when your bid is accepted and as opposed to when my bid is accepted. Yeah, I know it's an incredible amount of work there. And actually, I mean, uh, uh, just to plug my uh, program, I'm uh, have, developing a master's program here at, uh, at USF that's focused on, you know, there's been a ton of, you know, Amazon has, I don't know, a couple hundred PhDs working from just economics PhDs, you know, let us light right. all the... Amazon is scientists. one of the big employers of They've been big. Yeah. I mean, they're big at this point. Anything they do, they're big in it, but they're definitely big in employing economists and, uh, and exactly in these kind of roles. And so, yeah, so we're trying to uh, develop a master's uh, program that, that gives people, you know, familiarity with these market design and computer science um, basics, along with the, the sort of core economics that um, has kind of always been there so that they can contribute to, to groups like that. Um, so it's very evolving space. Oh, that sounds like a great thing. I hope you educate lots of economists. <laughs> Thanks. Doing my best. Um, so as a last thing, uh, before I let you go, uh, what do you tell, tell me what you're working on now? Um, are you going to ever revise the book or are you working on more academic, just focusing on the academic papers or? Well, so I'm, I'm working on market design and I'm, I'm contemplating another book. Um, a lot of my work these days is on, on kidney transplantation. Um, and one of the interesting things about kidney transplantation, it, well, it's a matching market. You have to be well matched with, with an organ. But, but one of the interesting things about it is, you know, there, there's over 90,000 people this morning in the United States waiting on a waiting list for deceased donor kidneys. And, you know, the, the people who took Economics 101 know that when you see a long queue for something, the price mechanism isn't being allowed to work. And indeed, it's against the law almost everywhere in the world to pay for a donor kidney. And that's an interesting thing. And, and we've helped increase the number of transplants without disrupting that, you know, without trying to change these, these worldwide laws. But, but that's led me to have an interest in what I call repugnant transactions, which are transactions that some people would like to engage in and other people think they shouldn't be allowed to. And so, um, so I'm going to write about that because I think that economists uh, haven't spent enough time understanding when markets, which markets and, and what markets and when markets get social support and when they don't. And the same thing is true about bans on markets, right? We sometimes when we ban a market, we create a black market. And so, uh, you know, drugs are a good example of that. You know, we, we have been consumed with news about COVID. But last year we had 90,000 opioid related overdose deaths in the United States, even though we we treat drug dealing the way we treat murder. We, we fill our prisons with, with drug dealers when we catch them. Um, but I bet that within 10 miles of where you live and 10 miles of where I live, if we knew what we were doing, we could buy heroin. So, so there is a market for heroin in the United States and there's a, uh, a demand and there's a supply in, in Colombia. You know, the, the Latin American meeting of the Economic Society is gonna be in Bogota uh, this year. I'm gonna speak at it remotely. Um, so, you know, the drug market is huge, even though it's against the law. There's a, you know, a small illegal kidney transplant market run by criminals. So, um, and, and, and the laws are different in different places. You know, drugs and, and kidneys actually have a great deal of uniformity. But before COVID, I actually traveled to Germany to talk about repugnant markets. And the three markets I, I spoke about were kidney exchange and surrogacy and prostitution. 
And the reason those are, were a good three markets for me to talk about in Germany is that German laws are exactly the opposite of the laws in the United States. Uh, in Germany, the only one of those three that's legal is prostitution. Kidney exchange is illegal and surrogacy is illegal. Whereas here in California, where you and I live, surrogacy, you know, you can hire someone to bear a child for you and your name and your, your, your partner's name will be the, you know, the mother and father on the California birth certificate and you can pay the surrogate. Um, you, we do kidney exchange, no payments go, but, but we, we... Oh, so Germany won't even let you do it without a cash, cash involved? So I can't right, even just... Right, they don't recognize oh. the parentage, right? Okay. So, so Germany, France, Spain, surrogacy is illegal. England and Canada, surrogacy is like kidney donation here. Um, surrogacy is legal. They recognize you can become parents through a surrogate birth, but you can't pay the surrogate. So, of course, there aren't a lot of surrogates in Canada. But, but banning payment of surrogates in Canada doesn't stop Canadian couples who need a surrogate to start a family from coming to California and having a surrogate. Incidentally, in most Canadian provinces, you can't pay for blood plasma. And in the United States, you can. So most of the world imports blood plasma from the United States and, and you know, we're the Saudi Arabia of blood plasma. Uh, so, so these are complicated things because on the one hand, you know, there, there can be black markets. On the other hand, there can be international trade. You know, so, so Canadians, Canadian legislators who find it immoral to pay Canadians for blood can't get enough plasma in, in Canada. So they buy from the United States where we pay. That's why we have plasma. Uh, and, um, you know, similarly surrogacy, these things. So, so, you know, markets need social support to work, but so that's why there isn't a widespread monetary market for kidneys, but bans also need social support. So one of the things about the, the real strict bans of surrogacy in Western Europe is they don't even recognize parentage, but that doesn't mean there are no French couples who come to California or go to the Ukraine to, to have a child by surrogacy. And then the, they go to the consulate and they say, we need a passport. And the, the consulate says, who is this small person? Uh, you know, why should that small person be French? So the French family courts have had to develop pathways for people to bring their babies home. Uh, and the pathway, I think, is often adoption, right? You can adopt your own child so that, uh, so that you'll be the legal parents because until you adopt the child, you're not the legal parents of a surrogate child. So... Um, so ban, you know, so banning surrogacy doesn't stop surrogacies from happening. Banning drugs doesn't stop drugs from being bought and sold. And of course, we had a big experience of that in the United States with prohibition in the late 20s and early 30s. We banned the sale of alcohol and we got Al Capone and, and organized crime. And now, you know, sale of alcohol in California is very legal. Um, one thing you can't do in California, just because it's not available, is buy rot gut whiskey from gangsters, right? The, the, that market has just dried up. The, the legal market, with all its problems that include alcoholism and drunk driving, but the legal market has outcompeted the illegal market. You just, I don't think you could buy, you know, whiskey from, from uh, a still in the woods, um, or even smuggled from Canada to avoid taxes. I mean, uh, you know, we have lots of nice stores that will sell you fancy whiskey from Scotland. Uh, so, so again, I think we need to talk about and think about all those balances. You know, what can we get? What markets should we support? What markets should we not support? If we don't support them, can we ban them? Or will we get something worse if we ban them? Um, 
I'm going to try to understand this better and write about it. Right. It sounds like uh, uh, you're, you're uh, well, you're looking at the outcomes, I guess, is one thing is you're also sort of straying into the question of like, why do we come to the moral judgments that we come to or why different societies have those judgments? And uh, uh, and that, that then strays into sort of, I don't know, sociology or, or, or anthropology uh, areas as well. But again, I mean, you know, to do, to answer the question of like, how can we make things better? You know, we need to understand, first of all, even what people define as better and, uh, you know, uh, not just kind of come in with our own, our own equations of the, what we think they should be optimizing and impose them uh, on them. Right. No, especially uh, since societies, different civilized societies around the world reach different conclusions about things right. like kidney exchange and surrogacy and prostitution. Okay, well, um, I did promise I'd keep it in an hour, and I think we, we've we're at, strayed a little bit over that, but I really appreciate uh, you um, uh, talking with us. Um, it's been a fascinating interview, uh, and uh, look forward to um, uh, all the things that uh, uh, you're working on now coming out and uh, learning more about um, these repugnant markets and uh, and how we can how we can uh, fix things. Okay, well, thank you. I, I look forward to seeing all your students starting to populate all the new jobs for economists. <laughs> thank you. All right. Bye. Okay, bye-bye.